0: This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is... The
1: Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Hour 3 is with us now. And, of course, today is Pearl Harbor Day, so we wanted to talk a bit about it. We're joined now by Dr. John McManus. He's a professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology and an an expert uh, on the issue. Uh, We're going to talk about the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which is today, of course, led to the beginning of the Second World War. Dr. McManus, thank you for calling in.
0: Hi, Buck. Good to be with you.
1: All right. So it's been 75 years since Pearl Harbor. Uh, tell us a bit, if you would, about just sort of the, the lead up to and, and, and what it was like that day.
0: Yeah, the you know, the lead up to Pearl Harbor is about a two year uh, process that the, the, the U.S. and Japan, their relations get progressively worse. And, and the main issue is, um, you know, the. the Kind of a balance of power in Asia. Um, Japan feels it needs resources to be on par with the U.S. and other Western powers. It doesn't have them and it wants to get them at the expense of China and, you know, portions of the Pacific and the United States doesn't like that. And so. Uh, You know, things deteriorate from there uh, until the Japanese decide they're going to have to launch not just the Pearl Harbor attack, but also a whole series of attacks in Asia and the Pacific, of which Pearl Harbor is just kind of the the centerpiece. So by the time this happens on December 7, 1941, you know, there's been a lot of twists and turns. It's been a long time coming, and the Japanese feel... Uh, that this is the way they can achieve some level of sort of economic and resource parity with the United States and military parity if they can destroy the Pacific Fleet. So that's the purpose of the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, is to, to basically take out uh, American naval power in, uh, in the Pacific.
1: And what are some of the, the interesting... Uh facts from from the day of the actual attack itself what are things mean, we all know that uh, japanese b- bombers uh, went after the u.s fleet you know at pearl harbor but what are some of the things that you know you're somebody who's written a dozen books on the u.s r- role in world war ii uh, what are some of the things that just people should remember or, or should should keep in mind on the 75th anniversary of this massive sneak attack on the united states
0: yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, I think the most important thing from our perspective, looking all these years later, there's 2,403 Americans who are killed in these attacks. And about 1,100 of them were aboard the USS Arizona, which is hit very quickly, capsizes, sinks, and it basically entombs these sailors who are still there today. The Arizona, as you probably know, is a is a memorial even today that you can visit at Pearl Harbor. Um and, you know, 68 of those who were killed were actually civilians who were in the Honolulu area and they were killed by American anti-aircraft fire because they didn't know what was going on. And when you're firing an like that, what goes up must come down. And so you have just unlucky people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. You have, uh, you have uh, Air Force uh, personnel who are at a place called Hickam Field, which is like right adjacent to Pearl Harbor, and <clears throat> they're, they're sitting down to breakfast that morning. And you know, the Japanese just score a direct hit uh, on this barracks uh, where they're eating. Uh, bombs just go straight through and just kill dozens, if not hundreds of people, almost in the blink of an eye. Uh, so it's it's that kind of event that's just so profoundly traumatic. And as we get more distance from it, it's harder to, to wrap your mind around that, on that kind of quick loss of life. And of course, then there's you know the ships that are sunk, uh, most notably eight battleships, but you know, five are raised later and repaired and used elsewhere in the war. So, you know, the ships could be be replaced eventually. The planes could be replaced. There's about 150, 200 of them lost, mostly on the ground. The facilities could be repaired, but the lives that were lost obviously could never be replaced. And uh, that's what like really tends to stay with me all these years later after, you know, studying it so much.
1: In your research into this, one of the questions, of course, that always comes up, uh, what people always want to know is, how could it be that the U.S. was caught so unaware um, at Pearl Harbor? How how was it that this sneak attack seemed to to catch us in a way that there was really very limited ability to to repel it at all? Um, How could how did we not see this coming? What were some of the factors that led to that?
0: To sort of borrow a term we use nowadays, it's kind of the perfect storm. Um, You know, the Japanese are are running a lot of different operations in the sense of preparing a number of different attacks, you know, from Hong Kong to uh, Malaya and Singapore to Indonesia, Burma, China, Philippines, so on and so forth. And they, you know, the U.S. intelligence has a pretty good sense that Japan is preparing to go to war. I mean, we know that uh, the, the day or two before the Pearl Harbor attack but there isn't necessarily enough good information that says they're going to be able to sail this fleet within about 300 miles of Oahu and launch 370 aircraft and catch us flat-footed. That's the part that's really sort of astonishing all these years later. And even so, um, the the U.S. had a couple of opportunities to, to find out about this at the last minute and perhaps stave off, you know, you know, what was something of a disaster and perhaps save some lives. What I mean by that, um, part of the attack, and we tend to overlook this, part of the attack was little mini submarines that the Japanese were going to infiltrate near the mouth of the harbor, and they were supposed to sit there and and, uh, attack any ships that were coming out of the harbor to escape the air air raid, you know. So um, one of these subs is detected by the USS Ward, a, a Navy destroyer, and is sunk about an hour or so before the plane struck Pearl Harbor. Uh, So, you know, they're trying to get the word to the the higher-ups, you know, back at Pearl Harbor in the command structure. By the time they get the message, well, the planes are literally right overhead and dropping bombs. Uh, The planes are also detected on radar by sets in northern Oahu, and no one really knows or understands enough about what they're seeing to realize what's about to happen. Um, so you know, I think the Japanese got away with what was a major mistake, a major screw up with their submarines. Uh, it, but it just you know, fortunately from an American perspective, it didn't cost them as it ought to have.
1: What was the what was supposed to be the the next step after Pearl from the Japanese uh, strategists' point of view at the at the top of their military command? So that they were going they were going to disable the U.S. fleet, and and then what were the sort of steps? They were hoping for after that vis a vis the United States.
0: What the Japanese are really interested in at the beginning of the war is conquering what was called in those days the Dutch East Indies. Nowadays it's Indonesia. And the reason is it was just completely resource rich. You had oil, rubber, tin, bauxite, iron ore, all this kind of stuff that Japan really needed in order to be a first class industrial and military power. And so. A lot of their operations are geared toward taking over the Dutch East Indies. And to do that, they have to crush British imperial power, too, which is prevalent, like, in Malaya, Singapore, Burma, um, and Hong Kong, of course. Uh, So Japanese operations are geared toward that, and then they're going to have to also neutralize the U.S.-controlled Philippines. So what they're hoping is that, uh, since the Allies are so unprepared for war, the first six to nine months or so after hostilities that the Japanese will be able to conquer this resource-rich empire uh, and you know basically cripple the US fleet and thus you know America's greatest weapon to strike back um, and negotiate some sort of end to the war on that basis that would be to their advantage. But the whole strategy is really undercut by this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, because the American people perceive it as so treacherous and so wrong and are so angry about it that they're determined to stand together and fight to the end. So right there, the Japanese strategy for a short war is undercut. And obviously, as we all know, a long war did not really favor them.
1: So essentially, the the Japanese were hoping that they could get what they needed in terms of their resources, seize these different territories, and then the U.S. wouldn't want to go. You know, then it's just, okay. we have this, Let's not let's not go to all-out war, but of course Pearl then led to a consensus among the American population, largely speaking, that we should go to war and that we weren't going to stop until they had unconditional surrender.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that was that was what the determination of the American people was in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And obviously there's a there's a kind of racial cultural element to it as well. There's there's a lot of hatred on both sides in that regard. But you know what really creates that is what the American people see is just a completely treacherous kind of act at, at Pearl Harbor. So um, the Japanese have kind of undercut themselves from the start. And, and their their war concept is based around something called Yamato Damashi, which is basically means Japanese fighting spirit, that that will prevail, that that's the, that sort of that's what tips the balance toward victory in war. Um, and they're right in the sense that human will is what decides wars. If you really like study the history of wars, that's what the tendency is. But what the Japanese overlook is what would happen if you end up against an opponent who has just as much will to fight as you do, but also has more stuff, you know, more right. – a stronger economy, the, the, more industry. This is like the, the
1: French French military colleges leading up to the the First World War. Well, Elin, they were teaching that it was essentially spirit – and full frontal assault was the way that you win conflicts. Uh, they didn't take into account the whole machine gun emplacement aspect and, and, and heavy artillery of warfare. They just figured you mass in the center, you're brave, and you win. It was a very bad strategy going into the First World War, and clearly the Japanese in the Second World War um, sort of mirrored that sense of if we just have enough bravado and enough willingness, uh, we can outlast them and we can eventually defeat them.
0: Absolutely. So they, now, I mean, they undercut it from the start.
1: If you don't mind, I want to ask, you've seen the Pearl Harbor movie, right? Which is problematic on a whole bunch of from from just a a film critic perspective is problematic a whole bunch of ways. But the actual attack itself, the way it's portrayed in the movie, taking out the the actors and the sort of dramatic, uh, you know, some some of the dramatic stuff that they obviously inserted to make the characters uh, central to what was going on but the, the, sort of the, the visuals and the overall way that attack came together, would you say that that's—was it pretty accurate?
0: I think the best part of that film is that it does succeed in conveying the shock, the trauma, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the human carnage that happens right when the attack occurs. Um, I think that part is pretty well done. As a literal minded military historian, as most of us are, and that's why no one ever wants to see movies with us um it's distracting to see post world War two era um, naval hardware <laughs> that's supposedly there in nineteen forty one uh, you know so that gets a little little dicey but i I do think that they succeeded in portraying the drama of the moment, the trauma of the moment, the difficulties inherent, uh, the shock of basically being in a peacetime mentality, one moment and literally five minutes later, you're in the middle of a war. Um, and your whole world, everything changes. And I, I did think that part was pretty well done.
1: And the uh, some of the, the, the sequences that they show, I mean, th- there were there were people who must have seen before the actual raid, I mean, they must have seen the, the planes coming. And I, I think I read earlier in the week uh, that some of the survivors of, of Pearl talked about being so, the Japanese pilots uh, flying so low at some points where they could actually, some of the pilots wave to them. Are there any sort of personal oh, yeah. anecdotes uh, that, that you came across in your research and writing the books you've done in the Second World War that you just want to share?
0: Most definitely. And I've wondered, some of the, <laughs> the really fascinating ones I've just been working on recently, actually, because I'm doing a two-volume history of the the Army in the Pacific Asia Theater, and of course, Pearl Harbor is where that story begins. And uh, I found a number of accounts from people who were based at the uh, Schofield Barracks, which was uh, the main Army uh, base in Oahu, and it's about it's about a dozen to a dozen and a half miles north of, the, of Pearl Harbor, and it's one of the targets that the Japanese hit. And so you have these guys who were basically lined up for breakfast, and all of a sudden now they're in the middle of an air raid. and Uh, The Japanese are flying around with so little opposition that these guys are wearing headscarves and looking at individual soldiers on the ground and waving to them uh, and, you know, smiling at them, you know, almost in a friendly way. It's almost surreal. And the Americans, some of the the, the, uh, the stories that, that I've uncovered, the, the Americans aren't really sure how to respond—whether to wave back or shoot at the guy, or or just what you actually do in that circumstance.
1: Why weren't they? I mean, one thing that you do see, and in, in, in not—I mean—to return to a movie that I, I would say is, is a overall a bad movie. Uh, but one part of it that I feel like watching this, everyone just wonders: How come there wasn't more of an ability, even caught unaware, to to fight back? I mean, what what would have been necessary? You know, they. they was it just they, they hit the planes, they hit U.S. planes on the ground before they could get up in the air? They they didn't have, you know, why were, I mean, the ships were at harbor, so obviously they're sitting ducks, but they have lots of uh, heavy weaponry on those gun decks. I mean, what, what would have been necessary, or why was it impossible for them to sort of mount more of a counterattack? What were the factors at play?
0: You know, a big part of it is that the military forces all around, not just in Pearl Harbor, but everywhere, are in a peacetime mode, which basically one, Symptom of that, maybe that explains the larger answer to the question, is um, the ammo lockers are locked, and of course in peacetime every piece of ordnance has to be uh, accounted for, you know, in an administrative way. So, you know, you're having a hard time aboard ships or or in an anti-aircraft battery or wherever you're having a hard time actually getting to your ammo, and you actually have supply sergeants who are kind of still in peacetime mode, saying, "Well, wait, wait a minute, no, I need orders from above before I can." allow this storage locker to be open and people are, are sort of like are you kidding me and so you know sometimes they're they're sort of brushing past these guys sledgehammering to try and get into their ammo lockers and obviously that takes time and the ammo itself sometimes is not prepared properly uh, some of it's antiquated and so that's a preparation and supply issue too um, and it's just the surprise and shock too that so many people have they're like what is going on and, and uh, you know to, to transition Sometimes makes, it takes 20 or 30 minutes, and by then the Japanese have been able to drop whatever bombs they want. So it's not as if they're flying around with impunity, but it's not quite the opposition you would hope. But I will say this. Um, if you were one of those Japanese aviators, you definitely wanted to be in the first wave rather than the second wave. By the time the second wave comes in, you know, about an hour, an hour and a half after the original attack, you know, the harbor defenses are pretty well alerted at that point, and there's a lot of ordnance going up after them. Uh, And that's when they take most of their losses. They lost 29 planes, which were not inconsiderable losses for them.
1: Dr. John McManus is an award-winning professor at Missouri University of Science and Technology. He's a military historian and an author of a dozen books on the U.S. role in World War II. More on Dr. McManus at johnmcmanus.com. Doc, appreciate you joining today. Thank you very much for calling in.
0: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back.
0: The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at TheBlaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. This is The Blaze Radio On Demand.
2: Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
1: 888-900-3393. Tobin in Ohio. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friend. What is up? Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was actually a little bit surprised
3: he didn't mention the fact that it was Sunday on the the particular day the Japanese decided to attack. Uh, Which, you know. But uh, a lot of people probably had weekend shore leave and whatnot,
2: but uh Yeah,
1: it was a I, Sunday I morning. Go
3: back to,
1: and, yeah. and people were people, people were don't. attending uh religious services off base. Yeah, that's an important point.
0: Yeah. I also find it interesting um, that they
1: that they put the they wanted to put the uh planes, uh the US airfield, what was it, wingtip to wingtip to make it harder for them to be sabotaged if I recall. I think I read that too. <laughs>
3: Yeah, which made them easy targets. Right,
1: just made them even places. more. It, it grouped the sitting ducks together as like one big duck, unfortunately.
3: Yep. Uh, and actually, chain reaction explosions did have, occur greatly. And also, they, they he might not have mentioned, even some planes that managed to do that in the initial attack managed to take off. In some cases, were shot down by our own uh, gunners because just in the Just in the insanity, they didn't know who they were just shooting at everybody.
1: Yeah, no, I can imagine that would happen, certainly, yeah.
3: Um, I'll get back to your point uh, about uh, why Democrats seem to be so apoplectic on this, you know, this whole thing. I think that we forget because we look at the map and we see uh, the the Republican held counties and districts and and the, the minute Democrat by comparison counties and districts held. But if you actually just came to this planet from another planet and looked at our media and looked at our mass media, print, news, TV, whatever, you would have a different understanding about who exactly ran this country, who informed this country, what this country really believed in completely. And I think that, I think it goes back to the old point where the person, you had people walking through the streets after election day going, how could Trump win? I don't know anybody who voted for him kind of comment
1: Yeah no think I think it him? was it was a huge shock uh, a huge shock not just to the media but to a lot of people that rely on the mainstream media for their view for their sort of portrait uh, of what America's like and who Americans vote for. Tobin from Ohio great call my friend thanks for your, uh, thanks for your, your time and your facts and shields high. Um, team we have got more. phone lines are still open 888 900 nine3393. Uh, We'll see what we hit in just a few minutes. Be right back.
3: The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Got some calls up on the screen, team. Let's take him, Ryan in Colorado. You are on the Buck Sexton show. Welcome.
2: Hey, what's shaking, Buck?
1: Just shaking and baking, my friend. What's going on?
2: I'm calling about that kangaroo. I have to agree with you. That sucker stacked, man.
1: Yeah, he he looked like he had spent some real time in the gym working those pecs.
2: Yeah, him and his bros shooting juice or something.
1: For sure. So you saw that, right? I mean, I, I got I squaring off against a six foot tall kangaroo. That's That's no small feat. I give give that dude credit who uh, who defended his dog.
2: Yeah, he defended his dog and he defended the situation. I was calling to, you know, the people throwing shade on it. Once you filter out the people that would throw it either direction, if he'd walked away, they would have called him a wimp. Or if he stood his ground, they'd be hating on him. But the ones that are actually concerned haven't been in a situation with a wild animal or a dangerous situation and uh, would probably do the same thing you'd hope if they didn't freeze in fear. But, uh, yeah, my wife and I were attacked by a couple pit bulls, and, uh, there are people that are even questioning how I dealt with that. But if I hadn't, we'd been toast, man.
1: Wait, your wife and you were attacked by pit bulls? how did this happen? Tell me the story. What happened?
2: Well, we were walking through the main park. We had our dogs, and at this particular time, we had one of our older dogs. She was kind of my little battle buddy there for a while. Don't want to get too much into that. I'll get shook up, but, um, yeah, we're walking through, and I just had this weird feeling. My wife gave me this knowing, look, Now, out of nowhere, this guy comes screaming through on a bicycle with these two pit bulls chasing after him. And I'm thinking, oh, man, and there's kids in the park, and they're on the playground equipment and everything, but they saw us walking with our dogs and came after us. And uh, this is
1: true What kind of story. dogs did you have with you, just out of curiosity, as we're setting uh, the scene here?
2: We, we had our, our baby girl, Addie. She's a golden retriever. And the other ones, uh she was an Australian Shepherd.
1: I mean, so this is obviously a very uh, dangerous and, and frightening situation. So what what do you do? So you've got your two dogs with you, you see two pit bulls on the loose. And well, what the
2: people throw in shade, I walk around with a, with a taser and pepper spray and all the non-lethal deterrents, right? And- uh,
1: Really, so you yeah. just happen to have pepper spray and a taser on you?
2: Yeah, so my wife and I have been, she teases, teases me a lot before this because i go through the routines and what we do and how you handle it but animals are smart and so this pit bull the the lead one the, there's always one kind of in charge in a in an animal situation he comes at me and he was too quick for me uh, and i'm not a slow guy and and so i had to kind of bait him in and i tased him in the mouth and pit bulls are a different breed and it kind of shook it off it backed off a little bit but it was kind of drawing me away from the we kind of centralized all together and it was drawing me away a little bit and the other one started to flank and so I told my wife she had to use her pepper spray and she pepper sprayed the other one and uh you know it kind of it it stopped it dead in its tracks but it even thought a little bit if it was still going to charge and then from there it was it's just too long of a story to get into I basically fought them off once they were kind of in a weakened state and uh, a lot of cursing and swearing and crazy Did stuff. Did you get, you
1: know? I mean, I assume you got bit.
2: Uh, you know what? One, by the grace of God, but two, by standing my ground. Animals respect authority, even the wild ones. And that's what that dude, that's my bigger point to that dude that went ahead and popped it in the nose, you know, or in the head. It, he probably protected himself because the animal's realizing, yeah, this dude will fight back. So, um, So we didn't get bit. Um, Addie had been bit a couple other times by loose dogs, and that's why we kind of kept up in our game and why I upped it to a taser. We had pepper spray and stuff. But... So your
1: dogs weren't hurt, and you and your wife were fine, and you guys just happened to have pepper spray and tasers on you, which that's, you know, not a lot of people walk around with both of those.
2: Well, that's the throw in the shade. People that don't know and haven't been in the situation, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of haters out there and think I'm, I overdo it, but it saved us big. Um, because these dogs
1: were no joke, man. So. Yeah, it sounds sounds like it. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you for calling in, man, from Colorado. Shields high, pepper yeah, spray high. Yeah, but that, that
2: kangaroo was stacked, man.
1: Yeah, kangaroo was. He was a jacked kangaroo. It was ready, ready to throw down. Uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. I went to visit a a blaze colleague of mine at his at his home in the uh, in the Midwest. And he's, he lives in a, I mean, it's not that rural, but it's in the woods. I remember walking the door. Uh, I'm walking the door. It's of the first few minutes of, of, of coming to his house. Uh, Is one of my colleagues the blaze. I'll ask him later if I can, if I can name him and, and sort of give more of the details of the story. But I'll tell you what happened now. So I'm there. I'm visiting for the weekend. And, and a, uh, he's got a black lab that comes out. And I, I love, labs are great, obviously. I love labs. And black lab comes out and it's a sweet dog, and, you know, we're sort of getting getting acquainted first time, and dog's tail's wagging, and then all of a sudden I see the dog, and it kind of, you know, had that whole hair on the back, stand up, you know, dog sort of points and growls, and I see, and out of a woodpile right near the, uh, out of a woodpile right near the front door, uh, a raccoon comes out, and I had never seen a raccoon do, do this before. It sort of stood up on its back legs, and put its arms out like it was kind of like why don't you come at me you know like like bring it i mean the raccoon sort of took this very aggressive posture that i'd never seen a raccoon do before i don't see a lot of raccoons here in new york city although they do have them here there's actually a a group of them that are uh you know getting fed by tourists at the southern edge of central park side note uh, but yeah it takes it sort of it stands up and it kind of you know almost like it's in like this kung fu position like it's gonna you know karate chop the lab and uh the uh homeowner uh, my blaze colleague went I, I i'm sort of staying there and i'm just like you know I'm city boy i'm like what is going on here We've got a the lab is sort of squaring you know the lab is growling and everything and this all happened pretty quickly but uh my blaze colleague runs inside comes out with uh I, it was a snub nose 38 i think and uh and he just put what he just put the raccoon down right there i mean it all happened in about you know i want to say 30 or 40 seconds and uh yeah that was the end of the raccoon but it was daytime by the way i mean so there was that concern too i don't know how i mean i think maybe the raccoon was you know trying to hide out in the wood pile and got in and when the dog came outside so i don't know if i'm not gonna say it would you know seem like it was definitely rabid but man that ra- raccoons when they want to be nasty they're nasty they're scary little dudes. This wasn't a big raccoon either, but he he was he was uh, trying to trying to get uh, all up in the Labrador Retriever's face. So anyway, Labrador wasn't bitten. Everything was fine. The uh, raccoon is, I guess, in raccoon heaven with a with a thirty eight snub nosed round of the chest. He's 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 gone. Um, and I was and that was it. Was like welcome to the woods, city boy. That was kind of the, that was kind of the vibe for me. I was like, oh wow, who knew. Uh, Joe in San Francisco, you're on the Bucks Action Show. Welcome.
4: Shields high, Buck. Hey, shields high. Yeah, you
1: know, that kangaroo looked
4: like he, uh, he might have been juicing. Maybe maybe they ought to give him a blood test.
1: I agree. He was a very, anyway. very, very robust kangaroo. <laughs> what else is on your mind, Joe?
4: Yeah, well, um, going back to your observations about the um, liberal hysteria that's going on right now, uh, in a spirit of bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle to Lena Dunham and Cher and all the people in Hollywood who haven't yet left the nation, which I am patiently waiting for, and uh, and their fellow travelers. A guy named Larry Correa, I don't know if you ever read him. He's an author, but he also is a gun expert. He writes a lot of interesting stuff about gun control, gun laws, um, He has penned something called A Handy Guide for Liberals Who Are Suddenly Interested in Gun Ownership. And given that they're convinced that, you know, the dark night of fascism is now going to descend upon America because of the election of Donald Trump. I know you've got some liberal listeners out there and maybe they should check it out. Larry Correa, A Handy Guide for Liberals Who Are Suddenly Interested in Gun Ownership. And it actually does have some good pointers there's plenty of snark in it too so uh interesting read for me funny you might enjoy it and uh just kind of a fun poke at uh i guess the uh the current nonsense that's that's going on the nonsense of the week uh,
1: so, what what are some of the things that he says in the book though i mean give give us a you're giving us a little bit of a preview but so what's well what's, it's not a
4: book it's a, it's a blog post i'm sorry the blog um, post i meant
1: yeah yeah
4: so Um, He says, judging by your social media over the last few days, many liberals have been utterly terrified, so that's it. Then his pointers are, you know, if you haven't alienated all your gun-owning friends, then you could ask them for some advice on where to go and what to look for. If you live in a blue state, you might have a hard time finding a range, but if you live in a purple state, you might have a little more luck, go there first. Um, You know, a lot of stuff like that, just uh, the the basics on how to investigate purchasing and owning a firearm. And there's a section on how self-defense works. He's trained a lot of people. He is pretty good. I've read quite a bit of uh, his stuff. Learn how guns work, um, how gun laws work. He knows a lot about the law, so that's helpful. Um, And it's pretty well summarized how to buy a gun, um, get better. Now you need to learn how to shoot. It doesn't work like the movies. Um, What about doomsday? particularly good there so you know it's all good stuff i
1: recommend right. it to your listenership absolutely okay <laughs> joe and san fran anything else for us you good uh i think i'm good for now thanks for taking
4: oh one last thing my father fought in the pacific theater and he was not at pearl harbor but you know days like today and veterans day i think of him we lost him in uh, july of 2015 um but uh Well, we honor him for his service. We thank
1: you and and his family for for him serving, and and God bless. And, uh, Joe, thank you very much. Thank you very much for calling in, my friend. Good to talk to you, Shields High. Uh, Team, we will be back right after the break.
0: Buck Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze
3: Radio Network.
4: It's the
1: book. I don't know about all of you, but I, I'm a coffee drinker. Um, I rely on coffee to sort of help wake me up in the morning. It's probably a bad thing. I know people would tell me you don't want to ever be relying on any substance. But look, we all need a couple of vices. What was it? Churchill said uh, you can't trust a man without at least well, at least uh, one or two redeeming vices, something like that, um, where every man should have a redeeming vice. You know, coffee is about as... Coffee's about as wild as I get. Um, occasionally a little, little tequila, but not, not that much lately. Uh, so I drink coffee in the morning, and it's a ritual. You know, I like to actually, if I can't, if I can actually go out and, uh, and get the coffee, meaning you know, I don't just sort of make it in an office or at home. That's my preference. And I just think this is interesting. Starbucks, which has become one of the sort of, I don't know, a, a highly recognizable American brand, And some people are very, very defensive. They really like Starbucks. And I I think I told you that inside of Langley, there's a Dunkin' Donuts and a Starbucks, and people made a lot of judgments about you based on which one you went to. I mean, this is really something we discussed in the office. You know, the uh, ops guys, ground pounders, uh, the sort of more field-oriented folks like to think of themselves more as actually Dunkin' Donuts drinkers, you know, whereas the uh, Starbucks was more for the sort of latte, the latte crowd, you know, oh... You're going to get a cinnamon spice pineapple mocha soy whatever grande frap thing. Um, whereas you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you're getting coffee. Just getting coffee, because you know America. Uh, also, it was it was we actually used to refer to it in shorthand as red. St- are, were you a red state coffee or blue state coffee guy? Blue state being, of course, Starbucks. Red state being Dunkin' Donuts. I think Dunkin' Donuts is owned by the Carlisle Group, by the way, the huge uh, private equity firm. So uh, Starbucks realizes that it's not sort of the it's not the the new hotness. There's actually a quote in this piece that I'm reading that I read uh, that said that Starbucks is millennial. It's considered the millennials' parents' coffee house. And there's all these sort of upstarts that are cooler, better. They sell things like a cortado. I don't know how many of you even know what that is. I just found out myself a few months ago. Uh, there's another one that I also oh a flat white, which is a thing that you can get in some coffee houses. And so Starbucks has decided they're going to try to broaden their brand or, or sort of reinvigorate their brand, really, by creating an elite wing of Starbucks. You know, this is like the Navy Seals of Starbucks. Um, and they're going to be selling you $10 cups of coffee at reserve bars. So they're creating this sort of elite label you know, this kind of reminds me of like uh, certain fashion houses will have different levels. You know, there's uh, – which I know a little more about these days because of, you know, girlfriends, the girlfriend. But uh, Ralph Lauren uh, has Purple Label, which is their super exp- – I mean, it's really expensive stuff. A Purple purple Label suit is like four or five grand. Or you can go to the outlet stores and, you know, you get, you get like cargo shorts for ten bucks, right? I mean, that's, you know, RL. is sort of a, a breadth of different things. But Starbucks is hoping to sort of become the – uh, to, to have its e- elite coffee wing so that it's no longer considered sort of pedestrian and for the hoi polloi. Uh, it just goes to show you how frou-frou the American public overall has gotten. There was a time when Starbucks was, you know, sort of trendy and that's where you'd go and you'd buy your Alanis Morissette CD. Oh yeah, that's right. It's like rain on your wedding day. You buy that at the checkout counter and you'd have your, you'd order your venti soy mocha, and you'd order and just knowing the lingo was sort of cool. And now Starbucks is kind of a little, little culture, a little more mock. I think it does a pretty good job. I wonder if this is really going to work, though. Um, they're going to open these stores initially in, well, I would assume Chicago. Or no, in Seattle, obviously, in Chicago. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna be selling coffee that costs as much as $50 for an eight ounce bag. I just, I don't know if Starbucks can create it. You know, this would be sort of like McDonald's all of a sudden deciding that they're going to sell, you know, steak tartare as well, like a special back room. I don't know if they're going to be able to make that switch. But as a coffee drinker, I find this interesting and I will watch this. And if I get a chance to drink a $10 coffee at one of these Starbucks locations, I will certainly report back to you. Uh, Team, thank you for joining me today for the show. I know it was a little uh, slow going in the beginning for me just because I was trying to Uh, wake up a a bit today with the grayness in the sky and the air but you know what? The team always always gets me fired up and uh, I appreciate very much you spending some time with me in the Freedom Hut. Please download the show share it with a friend or two. It's the best thing you can possibly do to help keep the Freedom Hut chugging along and I'll be with you live tomorrow and the next day. As always my friends, my family, Shields High
4: You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network